We are live. You already know what this is. This is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. This is the G podcast. We are live and we are featuring the one and only Mr. George Dion Daniel. Oh my goodness. Let's go ahead and bring him on in. Let's get right to it. Yes, indeed. Y'all know what it is. Another edition for you of the G Podcast, and we are live featuring the homie George once again. Everybody. Appreciate you for joining. Oh, man, we got a lot to talk about, so a lot to catch up on. I'm just going to get right to when we first sort of crossed paths, because that was roughly... Mm. 2010 2010 precisely yeah precisely precisely i was just finishing up undergrad and you were about to you were preparing to enter undergrad and you were at hillside high school so while we at it tonight's beverage you already know what we're doing right here man it's another oh, hillside. i love we, it we got, I love that. It. we got that on deck man yes um, i know you had some Jordan folk on you. I saw you was taking some shots in some of them other episodes. I caught that. I like it. It's all love. It, it, it's all love at the at the end of the day. Being at Hillside when we met, I, I remember you as a young man who would always be brushing his hair and always. and very social uh, around other people. I knew you were always smart, but to to get to where you are today, I just gotta say like. What, what what you're doing right now is excellent. That's just a little teaser, but what, what you're doing right now is just it's excellent. But but the early early beginnings when we met, like I'm I'm curious for yourself as you were at Hillside starting to apply for schools. I do remember you you that process and the way you thought about it. Like, can we just go over like which schools you applied to? when you absolutely. left Hillside? Absolutely. That's a, you're, you're right. I, I love that you brought us back all the way to that. I love just the beginning of our relationship. I think it's perfect. And I, I want to make sure I specify, I get the homies the love and make sure I, I clarify. I went to Hillside New Tech High School, which was his own like separate magnet school at the time, ran by Dr. Logan before he came back to Hillside and started running it down. So I love my Hillside homies, but I got to make sure I specify with the, all the schools, with the band, the track and all the good fun stuff. But um, no, really, growing up in Durham, growing up basically in the environment, I remember the HBCU and every one of the schools that I ever attended was black. Every, every single one, that's a blessing that most people don't get. I loved each and every portion of it. Um, so once it come, once it came down, was selecting. What were some of those schools? What were some of those oh. schools that you went oh. to before Hillside? Oh boy, first off, I, I, I make no qualms. I definitely had a wonderful privileged educational background. So I went to a church school, actually my church school, Southside Church of Christ in Durham over off of Thabo Road. Elmira Avenue down the street from Central, I went to QEI. They're like kindergarten to like third grade all the wonderful stuff i went to research triangle charter academy again i say shout out to charter schools i got all kinds of thoughts about public schools charter schools private schools i'm a public school kind of guy myself i love them to the death of me i ended up going to research triangle through eighth grade ended up going to hillside new tech it was the first year that it was open a school that was built around project-based learning providing different computers and stuff like that i have like a one-to-one computer to student ratio so a lot of really dope honestly educational experiences um so those are the schools that i went to 
And then once it came down to select an undergrad, an undergrad institution, I kind of just wanted to look at some different places. I had like Hampton on the list, Wake Forest, UNC Wilmington were like my ultimates. Of course, Winston-Salem, A&T, Central, of course, no questions. But I wanted to kind of do something I hadn't experienced. So what it came down to was Wake Forest, UNC Wilmington, and Hampton. Wake Forest just cost too much. It was just stupid, <laughs> stupid dumb. I was like, nah, I can't play with y'all. Hampton and UNC Wilmington. I, I was really leaning towards Hampton. I loved the idea. I wanted to go to an HBCU. At the same time, though, I had a talk with an uncle of mine, and he kind of gave me that idea. Go go experience something different was more or less the message that I took from him. So I went to UNC Wilmington, <laughs> affectionately referred to as UNC White, with a 4% <laughs> black people population. And trust me, we were down there fighting, me and me and Babe. We, we met down there together. It was a wonderful and challenging experience. I went to two PWIs. So I went to UNC Wilmington, went to Wake Forest, my master's. And now I'm kicking it back at Howard. So, all right. So going from a predominantly black environment mm -hmm. at Hillside. So, so for people who aren't familiar with what George, so I didn't realize you were there the first year they opened up New Tech, which is interesting, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, we was the guinea pig class. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's all in the same building. So it's not like you're mm -hmm. you're separated. It's you're, you're all in the same building. And when it comes to extracurriculars, Everybody participated on the same teams. You cross paths quite often, and it's a very predominantly uh, black school in Durham, rich history. Mm -hmm. And you wanted something that was maybe a little different, and you ended up at UNC Wilmington, which which you called you called it UNC White. Oh, 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 we called it all kinds of names down there, boy. Don't get me started. We it it it, it definitely. I was not black liberation activist that I was without UNC Wilmington. Shout out to y'all. Y'all y'all raised the real Oh, so you got <laughs> activated. Oh, yeah. So, so so just tell me, like, what, being in North Carolina, growing up in a city like Durham, and then going to school in a city like Wilmington, what was that initial transition like for you? Number one, cultural whiplash is the big one. I know we had to stop ourselves right before the podcast started, right? Because we was like, let's not go down this track yet. Let's not go down here yet. But uh, but growing up in Durham, I didn't I didn't appreciate it until leaving and coming back and just recognizing the the wonderful cultural and political bubble that it is. It is this this place in the the excuse me that is North Carolina. That is that is the foolishness that is North Carolina. Um, so once I got to Wilmington, you got I told you I was like, yo, I got down there and I started seeing the flying Confederate flags, and I was like, oh, y'all still do that here? Like this, and that's when I that's what I learned. Like that's when I learned they don't just do that. They proud of it. Like it's a lot going on down there without going too hard without going too hard but it was a but it was definitely a different experience I, I learned kind of what life outside of Durham North Carolina was and it, and it kind of when you when you're the only student in a class of 50 you're the only student of color like you don't have a choice there's <laughs> there's no longer there's no longer a choice you can assimilate or you can fight back like you can like you can represent your race or really you can just be yourself like be existing in an institution like that is an act of resistance like that is the lesson that i learned every single day was an act of resistance and it taught me a lot of wonderful things like i don't regret the experience whatsoever that said i'm at hbcu now for a reason so okay so i got my experiences but uh i know where home is just to okay <laughs> so when we talk about one in a class of 50 um like what type of what was this what, what type of class is this Right, boy, it's the psychology classes. Dang, I'm talking about the liberal ones. I'm talking about the psychology classes. Is it's 40 women, 39 of them are white, 10 men, all of them white but me. 
Like that's what it that's what it looked like. Don't even get me started with the business classes. The business classes are straight white men. Boy, I did I tried to double major in business and psych at the beginning. I was falling asleep in my business classes. It was about the old white men <laughs> making me sleep when I started writing papers about universal healthcare systems. They didn't want to hear that. <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. I just I it pushed me right out of that, right out of that background. I, I often wonder if I'd have went to a school like Howard or Central, what that might have been actually, what what my business background would have been. But they pushed me right up on out of there. I couldn't do it. So psych was where I, where I ended up. And that's where I ended up I'm doing really, really well. At. You, but you went to a quote unquote new tech high school. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious why the initial interest in psychology when you arrived, like what, what even drew you to that? It's a great question, actually. There's, there's, there's two things like there's a from high school really directly. I had uh, I had a psych, I had an AP psych class in like my junior, senior year or something like that. I ended up doing something like the neurobiology of hearing or something like that. Just explain like the inner ear system and how sound waves get translated into electrical signals and your brain processes and all. And like, I really liked it. I was like, oh no, I'm rocking with this. I can do this. I took some classes, not took some classes, took a little aptitude test and they were like, hey, you can make a lot of money if you're a psychiatrist. I was like, all right, bet. let's go make this money. But it was like, okay, cool. But from a deeper level, from a, from a deeper level, as far as especially what I'm doing today, I grew up experiencing things like neurological conditions. Um, my grandmother um, on my father's side had a stroke um, when she was 92 years old, paralyzed half of her body. My maternal grandmother passed away uh, about a year and a half ago from Alzheimer's disease. And I kind of watched the dementia process kind of take her memory away. So that ultimately kind of got me to where I am now as far as um, clinical neuropsychology. And that's that's a lot to unpack uh, if I'm, if, if we, we, so, so, <laughs> When it comes to like, okay, when we talk about that's what drew you to psychology, but like you mentioned stroke and neuro mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Alzheimer's disease, especially is a big one. That's, that's definitely a big one that I focus on all types of dementias and stuff like that. So a stroke is considered a neuro disease? In absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, well, absolutely. Because a stroke, we're talking about ruptured blood vessels in the brain. So what happens is now specific areas of your brain aren't getting the um, blood flow to get in. They're not getting the liquids. They're not getting the, the, the waters, the oxygen, the sugar, all of the things that it needs. And the longer your brain is deprived from that, the more damage is going to happen. And the brain is not like a lot of other areas. It's very difficult for it to recover, especially when you're older, especially when you're older. So if you have a stroke when you're about 65 years old, you can lose your functioning, your psychomotor function. You can lose your memory, you can lose your vision, your hearing, really depending on which area of the brain that it's in. And then when you think about dementias, oftentimes we think about dementias, but we don't think about the vascular con contributions to dementia. So without getting into all of the science, let's just say if you have hypertension, diabetes, and you have it for 30 years, then your brain is weakened. That's the, the short version. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the health disparities, health disparities is another area that I'm really big in. Um, we're talking about black people having two, three times the, the rates of diabetes and hypertension. 30 years down the line, that leads to increased risk of strokes, that leads to increased dementias. So that's kind of what my area is in the same way that you know, we kind of address the COVID pandemic from an epidemiological perspective. We were like, hey, we need to prevent this in all ways we can to save as many lives as we can. I'm kind of like that for neurological diseases, um, especially as the United States population starts to get older. We're, we're, we're basically experiencing an epidemic of dementia, of neurological conditions. Um, I've seen sources that say as much as like one in two Americans over the age of 80 will have some form of dementia. Like this is an epidemic. Like, come well, say, that number, say that number again, please. It's, it's about as high as I've seen a range from about 30 to 50 percent, maybe about I'm trying to say maybe 
maybe not one in two, maybe one in three to one in two, something like that. But the older you get, the more likely you are to have Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, frontal temporal dementia, a stroke, some form of neurological condition. And so we're looking at potentially as high as, particularly if Americans keep up the unhealthy lifestyles that we have, shout out to the unhealthy systems, having like as much as one in two people over that age. And these, these, these um, conditions are expensive, like outside of a health and human rights perspective, which I normally don't try to leave because that's more important than anything else. Economically, that's a person who can't work. That's a daughter who has to take care of her mother, who has now to take time off of her job, like who's now not making money. That's I've watched people blow through $250,000 in the last five years of their life because you need round-the-clock care when you have severe stages of Alzheimer's disease. So it's an extremely expensive disorder, not just for those families, but for the country for the world, but really just from a human rights perspective, like we really need to address these and a bunch of other health, physical and mental health conditions. So I'm a psychologist by training, but I do health psychology. I do neuropsychology. I don't think there's a difference between the body and the brain. And I think they're, they're intimately connected. They're really important. So we focus on things like health disparities, especially when it comes to black and brown, poor folk, regular stuff like that. Okay. Word up. So yo, like, like your ability, let me just say, like <laughs> your ability. <laughs> Ooh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> yo, pause. Yo, your ability to take an answer to a question <laughs> and go like boom, 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 boom is amazing. I appreciate it's it's a lot of information being stuffed into your into your mind there. So I'm I'm curious. Like I know you also at I believe it was around that undergraduate time you went to South Africa. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Three times. It's my second home. It's my. Okay. What what led you there and why three times? Uh, pure coincidence, fate, God. I don't know. Call it what you will. Um, I met I met a friend of mine, uh, Bantu Mchisoa. That's my homie, uh, Tua Bantu Mchisoa. So that's the big homie. Uh, I met him in a random jazz history class at UNC Wilmington. He was a study abroad. He was a student exchange I'm from South Africa, UNC Wilmington. For whatever reason, I, I rock with jazz. I played in the band of Hills. So I played the saxophone. So I just needed to take a random class. So I signed up for history jazz. And I met the South African dude in there. We hit it off. Like, we kicked it. He was dope. Shout out to college for introducing you to new people. And he was like, yo, you should come down to South Africa with me. And I'm like, that would be dope. <laughs> and then like a year and a half later, I was there. Like, oh, that's wow. that's okay. kind of how it popped off. There's a little bit more to it than that, obviously. But no, it was, it was truly life-changing. I told you, I remember the um, one of the episodes that I watched for yours was the, um, was the human rights episode. And I heard you mention, like, there's just no replacement. There's no replacement for international like living somewhere else internationally, really spending time in another place, because then you get to look back at the United States from another perspective. Right. And like, especially from a country like South Africa, which has just as deep of a history, talking about the history of apartheid and colonialism, yeah. just as deep of a history of racial oppression, like in a way that like few other countries can say that they parallel the white supremacy is in colonialism, imperialism, like spread across the globe. South Africa and the United States are like case studies of That's each true. other. And, just, and kind of being able to look at it and be like, dang, how did how did this country rule by all these black, like, would all these black folk get subjugated? Like, oh, they was putting laws in place that was, and they was like brutalizing them. And they were, and then I looked back at the U.S. and was like, oh, <laughs> that's what happened over there. 
Like, yeah. as much as I want to talk about how terrible apartheid was, it's not like the United States has any kind of moral moral superiority from a from a health disparities perspective, from a from an inequity perspective, from from that kind of viewing the world from a from a more globalist, I guess, perspective. It really it really shifted me. Like when I, I came back, I was kind of playing around. I went down there just for for kind of kicks. I went down there. I did some like cross cultural research, cross cultural psychology is what I was doing at the time. So did you go down there for like was it school? Yeah. Related? Were you studying there, or did you go there like just on yeah. some recreation? I'm out here chilling. Nah. Every time I've been, every time I've been to Africa, I've been with a purpose. I don't like the idea of being a tourist. It's just not. I don't like Americans for that reason. Um, but, but no, no, no. I went. <laughs> oh, but no. I, so I went. It doesn't matter how you feel. No, <laughs> I went to the student exchange um, from the, to the um, Nelson Mandela University, which again was the polar opposite of UNC White. <laughs> Directly before I left down there, the one that really gave me the motivation, I had a racist white roommate, like just outright, just part of one of the racist white fraternities. In Wilmington? Oh, just moved. And I think he said something or did something. It was just, it was a li- I'm not going to dog him or go too deep into it right about now, but it was about that experience. It was kind of the epitome of I need to get out of here. Mm, <laughs> and that was just my escape and running. And that was the first HBCU I attended. <laughs> that school in Africa with people from all over Southern Africa it was beautiful. I spent six months there learning um, cross-cultural psychology from a very, from a bunch of different perspectives, doing a bunch of things, but really just like really getting to know the people. And that kind of got me into cross-cultural psychology, came back over here, picked up neuroscience as well. Now I'm doing cross-cultural neuropsychology. That's been more or less my shtick ever since. Integrating, I, I, I've heard you say things like integrating things that you care about, talking to your creatives, talking to other creatives and stuff, integrating different elements of yourself. And that really has been my research, my clinical practice, integrating different things. I care about culture. I care about the brain. Let's mix them together, see if we can help some poor black folks out with brain issues. Like that's kind of how that comes apart, comes together. Yo, that is so dope because it, it's it it's a great. I, I think I think you're a great example of how you can be creative and impactful through higher education all mm-hmm. at the same time. Your like you just said, your ability to take your experiences and craft them together over time to lead to where you are today it's, it's you it's only you who can do that because it's your experience cool. and 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 it's so unique and and i think the power for individuals to realize what they've gone through and understand the the blessings that come from having lived through those things and and here to continue to make decisions mm-hmm. is a gift because everyone doesn't come to that realization of how powerful their journey is to the creation of their life. And you literally created a a path for yourself based off past experiences. And that is marvelous. Marvelous. I I literally tell my students all the time. I'm also also a teacher. I teach statistics at Howard right now in addition to my clinical research stuff. And one of the things that I I tell all of my students is make sure you're doing whatever's passionate for you. This PhD life is for the birds. Like, there's no money in it. I'm telling you now, like, I can make $200,000 after I graduate, but like all the student loan debt and the 10 years of like free work that I'm like throwing into this. Like, I'm just going into clinics making making money for somebody. But not me. Like <laughs> you need to do it because you care about it. That is that is the ultimate goal. Like I want to be financially sustained, sustained, <laughs> obviously. But really, 
like it, it's a motivation and that's that's how so any 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 students interested in going to graduate school anything like that I always tell them we're not looking at gre scores as hard as you think we are we're looking for what are you doing do you match <laughs> i'm in a um, lab right now at howard the health promotion and risk reduction in communities lab I'm under dr denae basically health psychology health disparities all that good fun stuff and we matched like the reason i'm here the reason i'm at howard versus anywhere else i considered a bunch of different schools the reason i'm here is because it's where i want to be the, mm. it's the place where i can do the things that I'm trying to do. Um, so follow your passion by all means. It's just a cliche, but it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Like I deal with people's mental health on a regular basis and people not following their passions, like people not engaging in the things that makes them happy is a miserable experience. Mm. It's really hard. It's really tough. And a lot of people don't have, aren't fortunate enough to, to be able to do it in the way that we're doing it. But shoot, it can be a hobby. It can be a, it could be a vocation. It could be an extracurricular activity. I don't care what it is. You need to do something that sustains you. Because life's hard. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You say it was going to Wilmington that really like activated this mindset of seeing, I guess, race through a different lens and mm -hmm. wanting to make a difference as it relates to that. You end up graduating, mm -hmm. having also had the study abroad experience while at Wilmington going with uh, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And you ended up graduating with a psychology degree, and yeah. was that it, or with a neuroscience minor? But with yeah. a neuroscience minor. Now, just they, for they people added that minor my last year there, and I was like, yeah, let's pick that up. <laughs> what is just a simple for dummies definition of neuroscience? Um, neuroscience is just the the objective investigation into the brain. I'll give you one more, which is neuropsychology. And this is why it's my favorite part, because neuroscience, I've done both. Neuroscience is, is just what is the brain? What does it do? Um, neuropsychology is the integration of brain and behavior. Simple enough, there are people whose brains are destroyed from Alzheimer's and are still perfectly functional. Like your brain, is just, like you can look at it in imaging and it is just blown up like, mm -hmm. but they're mm -hmm. still functional and then there's people whose brains are completely intact and they can't remember nothing <laughs> right right there's there's this distinction between like what's happening in my brain and can i still cook can i still drive can i still talk to my loved one can i see here <laughs> wash myself like there's yeah. there's this integration so where I live at is kind of the intersection of the, the biological, the psychological and the sociological, which is why I love it so much. I can pull in everything from like, like neuro, you know, neurochemistry, talking about the different neurotransmitters, but also I focus on things like structural racism and how it impacts those neurotransmitters. We really take it from the micro to the macro and mix everything together. Ultimately, that's what matters to people. Everything. It's all, it's all important. So that's the fun part. That's what I love what I do with neuroscience. You went from Wilmington to Winston-Salem mm -hmm. to go to Wake Forest. Now, I, I went to school in the city of Winston-Salem for undergrad, but right, I went right. to Winston-Salem State. Arguably the better school. <laughs> big, big. Hey, that, that is not an argument. <laughs> Shout out to Winston-Salem like, but what I know about that university was you couldn't just get on campus. Like, oh, yeah. Private school. Like, but but even like Duke is private, but you can get on campus. It's different. Wake Forest is mm -hmm. like 
super private. Like you just can't roll up on campus. Like I'm here to see what's good. <laughs> like you can't do that at all. That's a whole, you know, I talk a lot of trash about UNC Wilmington cause I went to undergrad. So I had a different experience. Wake Forest, I was more or less associated with the medical school and the medical mm. school Wake Forest is diverse. Like it is black and brown people from all over the world. Mm. It is mad diverse and the health disparities program is actually quite fire. So they got the Maya Angelou Center for Health Equity done. Now, all of that said, Wake Forest got similar demographics racially compared to Wilmington. So I'm sure if I went as an undergrad, I'd feel a little bit different. Number two, we're talking about health disparities in the city of Winston-Salem. Wake Forest was involved in eugenics, mm -hmm. which is not something that we skimmed over in my bioethics class, my clinical research classes, like my epidemiology classes, because you're trying to figure out, like we had to pull some researchers from A&T because Wake Forest and Duke both were having trouble recruiting people. I wonder why you're having trouble recruiting people. Maybe because the East Side of Winston-Salem remember the eugenics movement. Yeah, so let's <laughs> talk about eugenics just as a whole. Like, what, what, what does that mean, eugenics? Eugenics, and I'm not going to pretend that this is, my, this is my area of expertise, but eugenics was basically kind of the, the, the idea that certain groups of people, certain groups of women, are lo mostly black women, low income, especially those with mental health conditions, weren't capable or didn't have the agency to decide for themselves whether or not they should have babies. So we talked about a lot of forced sterilizations of a lot of black women. Now we all for like abortion rights, that's perfectly fine. The problem is stripping the choice away, whether or not to have a child or not to have a child, mm -hmm. especially based on somebody's race, their gender or their class. And eugenics movement was kind of a systematic kind of nationwide push on this, especially by a couple of white supremacists who just believed that black people weren't, shouldn't keep propagating, shouldn't keep having more babies, especially not these low income. What decades did this take place in Winston-Salem? Somebody, I don't want to, I don't want to speak out, the I don't want to speak out the side of my neck, but this was not that long ago. We're talking like the last 50 years, like okay, 50 to so 60 years. I, I asked that because, you know, the same thing happened in Durham as well. I'm uh, sure it did. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it's been documented and researched in, in publications. I think some, some research out of Duke, but it has been documented uh, that there was something. It was like a whole unit committed to something similar to what you just mentioned in mm -hmm. sterilizing uh, black women. It's it's going just going on a tangent. This this is why oftentimes people are skeptical of Medical, 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 all that, like, because it's been proven so many times that these institutions have strategically targeted our community in harmful ways. Like it's it's so that's just that's just it's just it's just an unfortunate thing. But that is like a, a, a reality that when you look like us, that is something you think about. Like, how can I even trust what this professional saying? Is it really in my best interest? Do they have an agenda like and there and I, I love this tangent. This is the, this is the health disparities tangent that I that I love to go on because there's so much medical. There is so much distrust of medical institutions as well as every many of the other institutions in this country, because we know for a fact that they weren't built for us. Us. They were built like off the backs of us, but they were not built for us. And that's one of the one of the big things that kind of comes up for me. There used to be this kind of thing. We we've known for centuries that black people were dying at higher rates. Black people had higher rates of certain illnesses. We've always known we've known these things for as like as long as we've been tracking them for hundreds of years. It's not a new thing, but what's changed has been our interpretation on why they're different. And I'm not gonna go all the way back to slavery, though we could. I'm just gonna kind of go back to like the 90s. 
when we started really putting out this health disparity stuff, we was like, yo, black people are dying earlier. We should do something about this. And the response from the public health community was more or less, well, they should eat better and exercise more. <laughs> yeah. And like, this is a true enough statement, but like you, why are we not eating better or exercising more? Is it because my neighborhood's dangerous and I might get shot if I go outside? Is it because the only food source in my immediate vicinity is a Dollar Tree? Like, what is the what are the structural reasons what about racism because racism has a physiological impact on it like it literally makes your heart beat faster it makes your blood pressure go up higher it makes you more likely to have a stroke like it makes you more likely to have depression it makes you more likely to use substances like all of the different things like these things have physiological impacts and it's not as simple as those lazy black folk don't care enough about their health to get off the couch no dog that woman worked three jobs and got three kids Mm -hmm. And y'all not helping her. Mm -hmm. So she don't have time to go to the gym today. And yes, it is cheaper to buy a box of Pop-Tarts than it is to get spinach, which is going to go bad in three days. Like this is like there are so many systemic things that go into it. The, the reasons behind these health disparities. Again, black people don't trust the black people don't trust hospitals. Maybe if they would just trust. Why don't they trust the hospitals? We, the, mm -hmm. I think the most cited book during the pandemic where people were raving about the COVID vaccine. And again, as a health disparities person, I want y'all to know, like getting the vaccine will help reduce health disparities. Like that's that's a pretty clear statement. But like hearing people talk about it, people were citing the book Medical Apartheid, which is just a documentation of the medical abuses talking about people. That's my little sister. Oh, uh, that's the health disparities person for yourself. <laughs> but uh, we, but you, you talk about these things. Medical Apartheid was getting cited often because people had a really good reason to not trust the medical establishment. We still do. Like, but the health disparities that I'm talking about is not people dying from the vaccine. We talking about CDC reports talking about 800,000 plus black people died from preventable illnesses between 1990 and 2000. That's almost a million people died from preventable illnesses. Like if black people died at the same rates as white people from 1990 to 2000, we would have almost 800,000 more black people in this country. That's genocidal. Like, that's not mm. like I, when I say that, like I don't mm. mean to be like outrageous or like hyperbolic. I think that's a really big problem. And people don't really think about it like that. <laughs> so, oh, OK, let's let's talk about, OK, like, man, this is this is such <laughs> a a rich discussion because it involves so many, like you said, structural elements. And when we talk about race and its impact, like you said, it, 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 it literally, it has a physical impact on you in terms of the different things that you mentioned when you're in. So, so when you're in your school classes studying, at what point does like race become like a focal point of what you're studying actually like within the neuroscience or the psychology like at what point did you really start going down this mm. race-based research wormhole yeah and i want to and i want to push back gently just to say that it ain't race-based just okay. to say that it is centering marginalized groups now whoever okay. that tend to be because i research south africans i research poor people incarcerated people people in poverty women like brown people, Hispanics, Asians, indigenous Americans. It really is people who are oppressed. That's, that's kind of where it comes where it comes down to. But when did I get there? I don't know. As a as a black person, you don't you can't in all of my cover letters to Wake Forest and Howard, I wrote, I'm from Durham, North Carolina. A city with wait for it. Hit me out. <laughs> I'm from Durham, North Carolina. A city with like 
I'm trying to, I'm almost citing it directly because I've written it enough times, like a city with a wonderfully developed medical infrastructure and also tremendous socioeconomic disparities. At no point, like my first job was working like at a summer camp, helping to refer children to mental health resources in Bluefield up North Durham. Like at no point was it separate. Now at different institutions, it was at UNC Wilmington, they didn't teach it this way. At Wake Forest, I was in a health disparities program. Everything was this way. Um, I got a master's in health disparities and neuroscience-related disorders. So literally, my master's degree was the integration of these two concepts. And now I'm at Howard, where it's secondhand. There's no, there's no cultural classes. There's no classes on cultural competency. There's no classes on how to help the poor and vulnerable and oppressed. It's every single class. Like, we don't talk about depression without talking about how it can impact low-income Black women. We don't talk about hypertension without talking about how it might influence lower income indigenous people like all of these like they are central that is the the mission of howard right sir it was a training the underserved to serve the underserved that is that's what we're doing like so it's it's been pretty vocal for me for a minute honestly i couldn't have done this neuroscience stuff divorced from culture divorced from race divorced from social justice i really do view it i told you i think the first time last time we talked that I really do see myself kind of as an activist first and this neuroscience thing is just how I'm talking shit to, to the people. Cause there's nothing better than dropping a dissertation explaining why incarceration is a risk factor for dementia. So, all right. So man, you, you, you say a lot. <laughs> like, yo, you, you say a lot. You say a lot all at once. Man, like, I'm telling you, that is crazy. It's such a plethora of knowledge. Like, if, if for, for people listening to this, at some point, you're going to want to, like, take this and listen again. And then when you listen again, you're going to want to pause and really make sure you understand what's what's being said, because it is it's 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 very insightful. And when you talk about incarceration, let's get it. Let's get into it. So you are saying that sending people to jail is bad for the brain. Now, before you, before you, before you respond, before you respond, a lot of folks will hear that statement and say, ah, obviously sending people to jail would, would do something to somebody. But when you say this, it's from a, a research perspective. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. can you speak to like what that really means in terms of how jail is bad for the brain? <laughs> it is to your point, intuitive, especially for black people. We two black men, what person thinks that whatever problem they have is gonna be better if they go to jail tomorrow? <laughs> what a problem, maybe your physical health, your financial health, your spiritual health. Nobody thinks, mm -hmm. I, don't, I can't find a person who would not be like, would think that going to prison is gonna somehow make any of your problems better. And I think you summed it up perfectly. You literally said my dissertation in like a sentence. Locking people up is bad for their brains. Now. Intuitively, we understand that, but right from an evidence-based perspective, how do you prove it? Number one is a lot of lit reviewing because a lot of people ain't doing this. Less than 1% of neuropsychologists are African-American. Don't nobody care about this, but me right about now. Like, I hate to say that, but like, that's about where it's at. This is bringing in your unique, I guess, backgrounds to it. But the, the short version is there's a lot of risk factors for things like Alzheimer's disease. Again, we want to prevent it because right now there's no current disease reversing therapy. We're getting close, but they're expensive and dangerous right now. So. The best thing you can do is literally live a healthy lifestyle and not get something like vascular dementia, strokes, Alzheimer's disease, right? Keep your brain as strong as you possibly can. What do you do? You get a lot of education. You do a lot of exercise. 
You interact with people socially. You eat healthy. Like you are a happy, healthy, well-adjusted human being for 50 years. And by the time you get 80 years old, even if you have a bunch of plaques and tangles forming in your brain, you have enough cognitive reserve or capacity stored. Your brain is strong enough to take that hit. Now you think about all every, the opposite of everything that I just said. You eat McDonald's every day because you don't got really much of a choice, right? Like you eat McDonald's when you can. You don't ever exercise because you don't got time for that. Like you don't get to interact with people socially. Well, for whatever reason, right? Think about all these different things. You don't get a good education. You're not housed. <laughs> think about all of those things. Those are pretty much the opposite of what I said. At this point, you just really, your brain is a target. The moment it suffers the smallest insult, you're going to feel it. This is why black people get it more and suffer worse from it, right? Mm. And then you think about the carceral experience. It's literally everything I just said. The food sucks. The healthcare sucks. You're isolated from everybody. You're stigmatized when you get out. You don't have housing. You can't get healthcare. You can't get a job. You discriminated against. It's hard to eat healthy. It's hard to exercise. In 30 years, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem now. Like, let's keep it hot. Like, they, like, formerly right, incarcerated right. people have enough problems today. If you are lucky right. enough, we call it survival bias. A lot of times we don't even see this because you have to reach age 65, 70, 75 to get dementia. A lot of people who are formerly incarcerated mm. don't make it that far. But to the ones who do, they are at risk. And we, not, we don't care about them. I think my older brother, uh, he said something real that was real enlightening to me once. He hit me with it. We was in San Diego kicking it for his own bachelor party. He was like, you like it out here? I was like, yeah, I love it out here. <laughs> he was like, yeah. <laughs> San Diego, it's dope. Like, what's it, what are you talking about? It's beautiful. He was like, I bet it's a bunch of old white people out here who could who could really need your services. I was like, dad, go right. I just tend to care about the poor color variety instead. That's a just a bad look for my wallet, boy. I should I could just go work for the old white people posted up around Duke. I know they got retirement homes over there. They just rich. They just got it. But I don't y'all got services. They care about y'all. People care about y'all. All of them white male neuropsychologists care about you. You're fine. I'm not concerned about you. I'm cared about the formerly incarcerated people. Am I living in Brighton, McDougal? Like, like that's who that's who I care about right about now. Cause nobody else does. I'm not gonna say nobody else, but not enough. It's not a, it's nowhere near enough. That's just not what the focus is. So yeah, so being in poverty, being incarcerated, being discriminated against, all of those things are really bad for you. <laughs> yes. You say not not only does jail impact the brain, race has an impact on brain. And you mentioned the physical responses, but like from a neuro perspective, like what does or what can racism do? Oh, it's really good. It's really good. There's a, there's a couple of things out. Number one, there are there are, there are often ethnic differences in intellectual capacity and people have capitalized on that to push racist arguments, especially in eugenics argument. Black people aren't as smart as white people. It's a biological thing. It's genetic. It's not. It's not. It is in no way biological or genetic. It is social. It is social. Our mm. schools suck. We are exposed to lead. We do not have access to good foods. Like, there are so many things from the moment you are born that, like, put your brain at risk from a structural racism component. And then there's the personal racism. And then there's the actual experiences of it. And what all of those things do, I like, there's a couple of different concepts that people have tried to use to capitalize or to kind of to capture it. Allostatic load is probably the, the theory I think does it the best. So it's called allostatic load theory. It is the way in which our body physically encapsulates the structural and interpersonal racism around us. It is your body reacting to the- What's that to called again? What, what, what's that called, called again? called the allostatic load theory. Allostatic? Right. So allostasis- That's one word like, or three? Way, 
<laughs> Good question. Breaking it down and not going too deep into it. Homeostasis, oh boy, I'm about to get my health psychology roots. So I hope I can do this right. Let me make sure I say this right. Homeostasis is what your body tries to do. It's when everything is well regulated. You got an optimal amount of water in your body. You got an optimal amount of oxygen, optimal, optimal amount of sugar. Your body has what it needs. It's not too much. It's not too little. That's how our body likes to live, right? That's called what again? That's called homeostasis. That's homeostasis. Just, we good. Everything is settled, right? Allostasis is the process by which your body goes back to homeostasis. When you wake up in the morning, your blood pressure spikes because you need to wake up. You need a surge of energy to get up and get out of bed. <laughs> allostasis is you coming back down the baseline after that spike, right? So this allostatic load theory, what it says is by all of these different experiences, your body gets dysregulated. It becomes harder for your body to bring that blood pressure back down. Mm. <laughs> Makes sense. It's harder for your body to it's like your rubber band gets stretched too thin. And it, it's beautiful. That's a beautiful description. Exactly. Like, hey, man, shout out to G, man. I can do it a little bit of that neuro shit time to time, too. Man. A little bit, the, man. It's the point that you said, like, this stuff is intuitive. It, it, it almost, it's almost annoying that I have to write an entire dissertation explaining what you said again in a sentence, which is locking people up is not good for their brain. That was the goal. If the mm -hmm. goal was to make these people any kind of better, I'm guaranteeing you it's doing the opposite. I'm trying to tell you that it's not so, working. So let me, let me offer, let me just ask some questions here, like, because... Is, is is locking people up period or in america did did, did your study consider what say co co correctional facilities look like in european countries or other developing world countries or was it just focused on the american uh, prison system that's really good what i'm using is what we call the health and retirement study um it's a big huge multi-site data going all across the united states this is wonderful biomedical tool that people have been using that came out of the university of michigan so that's what i'm using to do it so i'm focusing on the united states but i love your point i think it's a great one what about the correctional model in places outside the united states my first thought somewhat what's the word i'm looking for it's satirical the word i'm looking for <laughs> somewhat sarcastically i want to be like I wonder if you could get a sample size big enough to do a study like this in other countries because they don't incarcerate people at the rate that we do. <laughs> but first things first, you got to find another country that has incarcerated that many people and has a qualitatively better correctional system. But you're right. You can think about some places like I know you lived in Amsterdam. They like prisons and like Europe in some some prisons in Europe are like wonderful from what I've heard. Yeah, that is, like, relative for what we know as prison. Right. Relative for what relative. we know as prison. And you can yeah. do that when, like, your prisons aren't bursting at the seams. Like, yeah, we can't do that. Like, even if we wanted to have all these little programs, I'm really a. I have to kind of disclose it. I'm a prison abolitionist. When I'm writing this paper, like again, biopsychosocial, I can't erase like my biases in this. I know that I don't like prisons. <laughs> I know which angle I'm coming why, at. So like, tell me, tell me that. why you personally have such a just disdain for prisons. Like, where do you think that comes from? <laughs> I, think I think it's a human rights catastrophe. I think um, there's too much evidence. There's like my wife studied criminal justice. So this is where a lot of this come from. My wife and a lot of my best friends studied criminal justice undergrad. So I stole all of her. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, uh, Why the War on Drugs Has Failed and What We Can Do About It by James Gray, which is an old white Republican judge. This is not a new, this isn't a divisive or controversial thing. End of policing, 
Suspect Citizens, written about North Carolina, which one of my favorite one, Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, written about D.C. and cities like it with black city councils, black police chiefs and black police forces, which still incarcerate people at ridiculous rates. There's like there really is like in, from the criminology perspective, there is just so much consensus around how harmful America's mass incarceration has been. I just kind of want to bring in the health perspective to it and be like, no, this is this is definitely bad for people. Like, I don't know how obvious I got to say it. Like, I think it's pretty obvious personally, but I think the more evidence we can put behind this argument, it shouldn't hurt. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. So tell me what that means. <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting that that's where we are today, where if you have something to say, but you don't have research based evidence to back up what you say, then it won't really get any attention. And even when you do provide such research-based evidence, it will get put through the fire uh, time and time again uh, until it reaches a wider audience. I guess my, my, my next question as it relates to what we're discussing is when we talk about the impact health-wise, you've narrowed in on, like you said, health and neuro, you see them as one of the same because they're connected. Like, absolutely. With that said, how have you defined what those health factors are that get impacted by things like incarceration? You sound like you sound like my mentor. She a good, she a tough one. But I'm gonna have to send this to her because she because she asked questions about operational definitions and you wrote masses. These exactly what I'm talking about when it comes down to like defining because you got to get specific right what are you talking yeah. about yeah. so i use i actually primarily is my primary outcome i use neuropsychological measures um, and i don't get into the details of this but my my favorite thing to do clinically is administer neuropsychological assessments what you do is you basically give somebody a test and you figure out their memory you figure out their attention you figure out their visual spatial functioning their psychomotor functioning um you figure out is it your memory that's messed up or is it your inhibition is it your inhibition or is it your ability to see and we actually kind of i guess i can speak on it because i've actually talked i've actually kind of presented on some of this research now um, but we've already like i've already kind of done some of the preliminary analyses with like really large samples like i think there are like six thousand people in my sample so far that have already shown that incarcerated being incarcerated directly, not directly, let's say, has a has a relationship, has a negative relationship with your memory function. So Alzheimer's disease and related dementias is the way that I focus on it. Alzheimer's like primary thing is memory loss. Like that is like the one thing that very many people like can relate to if they've ever had like an older person in their life lose their memory. Um, that is Alzheimer's disease, like prototypical, but it's not the only but um, memory is affected by a bunch of different dementias, strokes, and a bunch of other different things. So that was kind of like the big stuff. And then as far as other things that are impacted along the way, right? Because it's not just you're incarcerated, now you have dementia 30 years later. You're incarcerated, now you have depression. You're incarcerated, now you have hypertension. You're incarcerated, now you have diabetes. And that actually helps along the pathway to reducing your, again, that intellectual capacity so that if you do end up having something like Alzheimer's disease, it shows much more like that, that, that memory is going to be impacted that much more by it. So really focusing to different neurocognitive functionings, right? I try not to get too deep into the weeds. I don't want to bore nobody, but no, this is important but, conversation yeah. and it's, and it's from, from the source. So it's pure. Oh, this is that fish scale. So you got to just take it how it is. Like this is pure from the source of the well, if you will, like this is, so we can't water it down. We'll, We'll, we'll we'll clip it up for people. They can rewind it, pause it, play it back. But this is this is important in my opinion because they need to hear young 
black males like yourself speak like this on a more normal basis. And when I say speak like this, not like on some like, oh, uh, tone and like, uh, like I'm talking about just speak with a passion and with a with with, with a matter of expertise in what mm. you're talking about. You're not just mm. out here throwing just out opinions yeah. about what you're talking about. Oh, not to say that there's not room or or places for that. I think that's important too. We should be able to have opinions and reactions to things, but your perspective is not an opinion. It's 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 a research-based, evidence-based result that you're talking about what the process was like to find a result and what the results were and all the other stuff. So really based in science and we need demonstrations of people like yourself talking so passionately and like fly like you just you, you just talking like like i said it just it just comes out so naturally pause that's just what you do and we need more examples of this if motherfuckers is bored it doesn't matter how doesn't you feel this is the fucking g podcast i don't give a what y'all talk about if you bored <laughs> I I no talk back no, nah, <laughs> this is what we doing. High level convo. So please continue. We gonna board the shit out of these niggas, man. That's what. The out of these you know what? what I, we said, do. I said something recently where um, I'm trying to decolonize the concept of professionalism. And for the record, the reason I wanted to come on your podcast so much because I know you talk about so many different things. Like you go from really high level topics to talking about things about marriage, to talking about like storytelling, like you, like the diversity of it. But decolonizing professional, professionalism is one of the big things that I care about. In real talk, I think I've hit this point. <laughs> and I said it to my mentor during the class that she was teaching where it was just like, this is, this is f-ed up. And like, I don't, I don't mind saying that. Cause like, if you're more, you're, <laughs> if I told you that black women were three times as likely to die, during pregnancy and that's f-ing ridiculous and you were more upset about me saying f-ing than the fact that i just pointed out <laughs> right 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 even even you talked about if this bores you turn it off boy my favorite thing about covid and i ain't got many my favorite thing about covid was when the sports got shut down mm. when the concerts got shut down and got in the streets and got active because they was like oh i'm mad now like <laughs> Now I've got time to sit around and look at the foolishness that we in. Now I ain't got nothing to do point. but look That's at that great George point. Floyd. Like, I get it. Like I'm, I'm lighthearted. I love talking about basketball, video games. I love to talk about all of these things. But also, like we should probably talk about something with some substance. Like if you care about the future for your children, for your community, if you care about your family. Like if you like, are you mad at your rent prices going up? Because I am. Like. Mm. Are you mad at your job's not paying you enough? Because I am. Like, like it can't all be shits and giggles. Like, sometimes we really need to have these conversations. And it also can't all be about the ugly. Like, I really, Cornel West, I told you, is one of my ideological role models. And he talks a lot about embracing the beauty in the world. I think, like, I love taking a good picture of a flower and going and seeing some beautiful stuff. I can't wait to go turn up with the homies out at the club. Like, right. we were drunk in the Natural History Museum recently <laughs> over the weekend. I can't wait to go do, like, some fun stuff. But at the same time, like, we need to care about this stuff. Like, <laughs> we collectively like collectively i'm not an individual kind of person like it's ain't about me i think i heard homegirl who's talking about the ancestors on your podcast yeah. come through this like this ain't no ego trip people are dying from being poor every day i work with them i know it's 
like I, I cussed. I about cussed out one of my cousins one day. We was chilling. He was like, "Man, why are you always talking about this?" I was like, "My bad. You want to talk about the hoes?" <laughs> <laughs> my bad. Like, <laughs> my bad. Like, but like, I care. Like, I don't know. I think the world would be a better place if cared more. I agree. I agree a thousand percent. I agree a thousand percent. And you, you're, you're still in the your current program working toward your PhD, but help help me understand one thing. What's the difference between clinical psychology and psychology? There's like, there's different, there's a thousand, I just did a, a presentation on this for some undergrad students. There's a thousand things you can do with a psych degree, which is actually one of my favorite things with it. Like, you can't put us in a box. Like, I will pop out and be a teacher, a researcher, a clinician, or whatever else I feel like being an activist any day of the week. And psychology itself is just a really broad term. It's the study of human behavior. It can be anything. A lot of it's research oriented. If you're not talking clinical psychology, you're talking about a lot of research. A lot of it's just research for research sake. Like, it always has uses, but this is what liberal arts are. Like, learning mm. things just is that why are people actually attracted to their opposites like like why do that why did i do this why did i act that way why did why did this person say that that's kind of psychology just trying to investigate human behavior clinical psych really is about trying to help people with that knowledge being able to help people specifically with different mental health conditions and where i live and when i say i live like kind of vocationally where i live from a career perspective is along this spectrum where like depression is hard to pin down neurologically. We know that there are neurophysical differences, neurophysiological differences in people who, are, who have depression. So it is a neurological condition, but it's harder to see. Alzheimer's disease or a stroke are obvious. Like you had a stroke mm. in this specific portion of your brain. And I just kind of live on this spectrum. But what we try to do is use the knowledge that we have to help people, help reduce depression or anxiety, um, try to help people rehabilitate, uh, rehabilitate themselves cognitively after they have a stroke. And anything along that spectrum, I just did a bunch of health psychology where I was trying to help people manage their health conditions better. So you got hypothyroidism, but you're not taking care of it because you wanted to die. <laughs> you're not taking your medications because you want to die. Let's focus on that depression part. Let me, let, me, that. <laughs> let me ask a question here, because I think a lot of people especially today, have either come across a family member or a friend who has suffered from depression. Absolutely. And we and we and we hear the term. Can we just talk about like what that means from a clinical perspective in a way to help us really understand what someone's really dealing with if they're suffering with depression? People, the two big ones that most people talk about are depression and anxiety, right? Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, they kind of their own unique things. They're a little bit more nuanced. But the big ones that impact like large swaths of, of the American and international public, well, just people in general, depression and anxiety when we talk about depression we're talking about feeling down depressed hopeless just having a complete lack of interest in doing anything whether that is hanging out with people going places things that you would typically find enjoyable I and mean, a whole bunch of different other symptoms that come with it sadness irritability lack of energy low appetite thoughts of dying all those different things and really experiencing that not just like today because we've all been depressed like today like we've had sad moments right like god just lost somebody i'm sad right now right but we talking about feeling this way for weeks or months at a time and like having those real periods of it so that's what clinical depression is anxiety um, again we've all experienced anxiety on some in some way shape or form a little bit of fear right a little nervousness a little worry especially about something that's really not that big of a deal or objectively it's not presenting the biggest threat to us but it is but it is feeling that way often and about many things and most importantly 
there's two like real big criteria. This is how you have a mental health condition. Like I, I say this to people, like seek help if one of these two things, either it's distressing to you, like either you feel distressed about it, like yo, I'm anxious every day, I don't like this. Mm. I'm depressed every day, I don't like this. Like that's distress. If you're in distress, go see somebody. Number two, if it's dysfunctional, if you're not able to go to your job, if you're not able to manage your relationships, if you're not able to just do day-to-day functioning, I was too depressed to get out of bed and take a shower for the last week like that <laughs> so if it's distressing or dysfunctional if one of those two things are happening then it's then it's a good chance that it's some form of like mental health condition and i think the bigger trick here and I, I do this with cardiovascular disease too but when it comes to mental health i think it really works here too there's this concept of subclinical disease you don't have to have full-blown clinical depression to know what depression feels like you don't have to have full-blown clinical anxiety generalizing anxiety disorder to know what anxious symptoms are like right when we tell them we're telling people how to better manage their mental and physical health we're talking about it from a public health perspective because everybody could probably benefit from going to a therapist at some point. Everybody could benefit from trying some meditations out. Everybody could benefit from doing some self-care activities, whether that's taking a good spa bath, going to hoop, hanging out with your friends, whatever that might be, taking a break because capitalism will kick your ass. Like, it's not, I don't think it's that good for your mental or physical health. Just kind of talking about it broadly, you don't have to have a diagnosis to start paying attention to taking care of your mental or physical health. You don't got to have diabetes to not want to drink that Coca-Cola. So, so, so let me ask this, because just from your perspective, what are some of the, the key risk factors that can lead to someone suffering from depression while also if you are in that state like what is the way to go to reverse those yeah feelings and and thoughts like like from from your perspective like what are the things that you've seen really there's a there's a lot to it there's a lot to that question it's a wonderful question that's a that's a couple papers worth of a question that's a book worth of a question Mm -hmm. what are the risk Mm -hmm. factors for something like depression, what do you do to get out of something like that? The risk factors can be any number of things, but from my perspective, again, as a person who focuses a lot on social epidemiology, a lot of it's social. Like, so I'm gonna start off, genetic is a big one. If you have, if both of your parents have depre- clinical depression, then it's, then it's a risk, it's, that's certainly a risk for you. So there is genetics in there. Mm-hmm. But then there is just what you experience on a, on a daily basis. Um, if you experience nothing but trauma, throughout most of your life, it's very easy to feel depression. If you're yeah. marginalized, they're discriminated against on a regular basis, your socioeconomic position, like just feeling like you are trapped in a rat race because sometimes our depression and anxiety is not as pathological as we want it to be. It's not like, oh, that's a disease. No, you're homeless, sleeping on the streets in your car. If you're playing animation just like this, you're sleeping in your car every night and you can't sleep because you're hypervigilant and you're like panicking going to sleep because you're afraid somebody's going to do something to you at night. That's not anxiety, <laughs> but it's not maladaptive like it makes sense it almost is not like it, it makes sense why you would be anxious it makes sense why you would be depressed shit you can't like you're chronically afraid of being homeless every month because your paychecks ain't enough you're gonna feel a little bit of depression so i think that goes into it for men there's a, there's a specific thing there's there's gender stuff too especially for men men <laughs> like to base everything shout out to the patriarchy we like to base a lot of our self-work and our work right we, we like to base a lot of our, our, our work and our self-worth and our work. And for men, a big risk factor for depression is unemployment. Ask any man, myself included, what happens when you lose a job? You can't, boy, being a provider was all I had my little identity based on and now I can't do it. You know, yeah, yeah. women do attempt suicide at higher rates. Men 
older white men are the largest group of people who commit suicide in this nation. Mm -hmm. Older white men. Now, I mind you, that goes against everything that I just said, right? I right. just say, if you're poor and marginalized, that then you're going to be an increased risk for depression. We're talking about women, we're talking about black people, we're talking about poor people. Why are white men the biggest suicide committers in the country? Because they got the most guns. Shout out to the patriarchy. You thought that gun kept you safe. It was your demise. Like, that is a, that is a thing. Like, that is a thing. Good, appropriate. So hold on. So let me ask this then, just on a, on a quick side note. Your, your opinion on the Second Amendment. I'm not gonna give you my opinion. I wish I could point out. I wish I could. I wish I could point out this. I wish I could point out this author specifically. There's a black woman who recently wrote a book, and she's been interviewing this stuff too. Who basically pointed out that the Second Amendment, the entire purpose of it, was to hold black folks down. That was the point. The Second Amendment was never granted to black people. Like it was. It was like it was. And militias, well-regulated militias, have never been evidenced to be good at preventing any form of tyranny. What they are good at is preventing slave rebellion. What they are good at is going to catch runaways. What they are good at is preventing people in the North from like having factory uprisings because they had because they live in slave labor conditions. That is what that is what the Second Amendment in the United States has done. Why is the United States the only country that's like this? Because we're the only ones who had this specific form of chattel slavery, which necessitated a Second Amendment, which gave white men the power to subjugate us with those weapons. So the honest truth is, from a public health perspective, I think guns are the worst thing ever. Truly, I think we need to get rid of them as quickly as seemingly possible. I don't own a gun. I think there are plenty of things you can do to protect yourself. I understand security and safety. I understand a young black boy walking to school in Chicago feeling the need to protect himself. I think he has a better reason to have a gun than the white man out there with the AR-15 hunting deer? Question mark? I'm not sure. Like, but the truth is, for every, this is one of those public health statistics, again, they they passed a law at one point which made it illegal to use CDC funds to investigate gun violence as a public health ep epidemic. Shout out to the NRA. Like, but from the studies that have been done, they've said things like, for every one justified use of a firearm, i.e. somebody broke into my crib, I shot at them to keep them from hurting me and my family, and they ran away, right? That's the, that's the refrain that people like to use. For every one of those events, there's three accidental shootings. That is, you committed suicide, you committed domestic violence and shot your wife. Your child found a gun and killed themselves. Like that's you what you committed happened. suicide is considered an accidental shooting. Well, at least it's a it's a it's an inappropriate use of that firearm, right? Okay. The justified shooting is the uh, somebody tried to rob me, and that's everybody. That's what every, especially to the men I'm talking to, is because we like I want to protect my family. I want you to know heads up. One of the most dangerous things you can do for your family is bring a firearm into the home because of those three other things. Mm -hmm. Because as much as you like to think I'm gonna play the hero and protect my family, statistically, the person most likely to hurt my wife is me. Mm, <laughs> it's not the nigga in the alleyway down the like on the corner, like. <laughs> Who's most likely to hurt your family? It is men with unchecked mental health issues. Mm. Like that's the like. So you trying to make people safe? Go to therapy. Like that's really like statistically, that's what's going to help you. Not getting a firearm. Wow. But that's an unpopular opinion, and I understand. I don't know if it's pop. A popularity is so overrated, in my opinion. Uh, popularity, popularity, popularity. Like I said, it's so overrated. Being popular is not a reflection necessarily of anything other than being popular, right? When it when it comes to like that that opinion, I think there it's polarizing. I'll say that. Sure. I think it's a polarizing opinion in that there are going to be people who definitely agree and people who adamantly disagree. Absolutely. <laughs> But I do think it's interesting that you point out, which I, I too often like to point out, like the American experience is unique, uh, especially when you 
aren't just like black, but when you when you descend from people who were enslaved, your relationship with race and how you talk about it and how you're conditioned, so little things like, for example, like as a child, I'm curious, were you ever told to like keep your hands out your pockets when you were in the store? <laughs> like, was, it, was this ever told to you at any point? I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I know the phenomenon you're talking about where you gotta like check yourself when you in a, when you in a store. Like you gotta really like what be watchful of yourself. Like yeah, somebody might be looking at you. Somebody might be. <laughs> so what, what what you talk about in terms of racism and how it impacts someone someone's physiological state? Mm -hmm. I think something to to also mention in this conversation is when parents reinforce these conditions in a way that force the, the, the individual to see things through a lens that they weren't necessarily thinking about. Like, so, so, so for example, like I, I just know, at least for myself, my mom made me super aware about like, you can't be tripping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> real, real you can't. Like she would tell me, like keep your hands out your like she was like, boy, take your hands out your pocket. You know what I'm saying, like we 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 in the store, they gonna think you stealing, and I'm mm -hmm. like, they gonna think I'm stealing because my hand in my stealing. pocket. All right, <laughs> I can't but even then do you, this. You, you take these thoughts, you put them in your brain, and then you become a teenager, you become a young adult, and you walk in the store, and I I, I catch myself taking my hand out my pocket just mm -hmm. on some like, oh, let me. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure nobody think I'm out here stealing. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me be cool. Let me be cool. Also, too, like, it's, it's to your point about the gun, like, also, too, like, right or wrong, I'm not saying, but being taught if someone hits you, hit them back, right? Mm -hmm. Like, being taught to fight back versus being taught to resolve or do something different. The way we internalize those... Mm -hmm things that are said to us around us from people we look up to or things that are just things we observe on a normal basis like as i'm just thinking back through having this conversation and through like little subtle ways that like i get introduced to race and how i perceive the world a lot of that too is through the household and through what my elders in the household went through and hearing their experience hearing how it made them feel and then going out into the world like charged to some degree because i'm already aware of like the the, the just the the discriminatory practices that take place and the or being told you're gonna have to work harder than them or you're gonna have to do this and like a lot of that does get introduced internally in a household and i'm just curious like from your perspective do you think a black person can be racist <laughs> That's the question you got from that. That was good. That was good. That was such a good analysis. And I got some thoughts in my head about what you just said, but I want to answer your question. Do I think black people can be racist? Absolutely. But not in the direction that many people think. Mm -hmm. We're talking about structural racism. Can I have an interpersonal bias against a white person? Absolutely. Sure. Go for it. But that's not racism. Racism okay. is a structure. It is a, it is a system of things designed to keep you your community, your children, and anybody else in a form, in a, like in a state of subjugation. Like that is that is what racism is. So can black people be racist? Absolutely, to other black people. To other black people, there are black politicians, right? Just Clarence Thomas, am I done? Like, am I done yet? Like, because siding with that abortion ruling systematically made sure that black women weren't gonna have access to healthcare, to reproductive healthcare. 
that is racism. So yes, that black man absolutely participated in racism. Like that's that, that's the way the black I can walk down the street, see a group of black men wearing hoodies, and walk across the street because that that is the way that we have been. Is that racism or is that intelligence? I think it, I think in this point. It is in the same way that white people fear black people, black people fear black people. In the same way that men hate women sometimes, women hate women sometimes. In the same way that rich people hate poor people sometimes, poor people hate poor people sometimes. We have been conditioned to view those people as the other, whether you're in the group or not. That's the concept of self-hate, right? Mm. Like it is the case like locking up our own again is the best is the best example of that it chronicles dc which chocolate city turned up right black mayor black city council black police chief black police officers la new york chicago atlanta durham how did y'all have all of this these wonderful progressive representation and still build these massive systems of incarceration. The LAPD ain't a small organization because California is so progressive. The NYPD is not a small group of people because in New York is so progressive and ran by black people. Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris ain't pro-prison abolition. She was a prosecutor. I love her to the death of me. That's a Howard alum. I kick it with her any day of the week, but like I disagree. Joe Biden's crime bill. He's not black, but that's racism. <laughs> Like, so like, again, we're talking about systemic racism. White people don't know what that is. Poor white people do. Granted, they like to blame us for it. <laughs> Shout out to the whole propaganda against the classes. So one of my goals, man, long term. So, so, so multi-layered situation because with you going to Africa. So I've been to Africa, but I went to Kenya. Cool. So cool. I didn't go to South Africa. I went to Kenya. Also to just studying colonialism. Right. Mm -hmm. Huge impact on that continent. And Absolutely. one of the things that I noticed when you go to a country like Kenya is that this notion of race becomes something different because it's nothing but <laughs> everybody's black. Now, there might be a couple like what a wonderful experience, South Asian <laughs> people, but it's it's black people and the levels of oppression in that mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm are arguably exponentially worse than what we see here, if I'm gonna be frank. Like, the living conditions that some that a lot of these people have to endure day after day is makes what the average housing development projects or whatever look like a world-class facility, if I'm being honest. This has been my, I guess, like, as, as I've come to grow and travel and reflect on what to be a black American. Growing up here, <clears throat> and you tell me if you feel any different, but this is like, so growing up here, a lot of what you describe, I would echo. You have these experiences, especially in the state of North Carolina, especially if you grow up in a town like Durham, when you leave it and go to other places in North Carolina, even if they're quote unquote liberal, it's not Durham, it's different. Like D Durham is, <laughs> Durham is its own unique sort of bubble for people who look like us. Like, mm -hmm. I'll admit that. Like, my run is if, if Durham cops versus cops in Chapel Hill or Raleigh, like, way I different. had way different experiences, <laughs> like, in terms of how I'm treated and 
the outcomes. I'll just you say that. about Wilmington, boy. Don't give me that. I don't even know what I'm saying. I get nervous. That's it, y'all. I'm, I'm nervous. Like, that's what I said. So, like, when I'm traveling, whether it be from Durham to Charlotte, Durham to Greensboro, to the mountains, to the beach, I get nervous because I don't want to deal with police folk outside in these pockets of North Carolina. So that's a fact. But you have these experiences and you know for sure, like, race is such a factor in how you're being treated and why mm -hmm. this outcome is taking place. But then a lot my, my closest friends are actually Ethiopian and Kenyan. I still have yet to go to Ethiopia, but I did get to go to Kenya. And when I saw how people who looked like each other treated each other, mm. made me look at the race conversation here a little bit different, if I'm being honest. It, it, it really, and, 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 and I, when I look at the history of the United States and, and how race was literally created and how it evolved over time, because like everything that's white today was not always white, for example. And there was actually a mulatto race at one point. We talked like 1865. Like yeah. I, I, I did talk to, I have, I have a family member who did some research and they traced to that census of 1865. And that's the like oldest descendant. I think that, that my family, someone in my family on my mom's side has found. And on the census, they are not labeled as black or white. Mm -hmm. They're mulatto. Right. So, so race has even evolved in the United States over time. But when I look at the systems of oppression, I, I ask myself, because when you're over there, say, in Kenya, it's not race based, but it is tribal. Right. And I'm sure same is similar in, in, in South Africa, but it's still very much territorial. It's still very much rivalries that go back centuries Know what I'm saying? Being over there, it kind of made me like really just rethink the idea of race. But I'm curious, just from your point of view, like I see America more as class and socioeconomic yeah. levels in terms of impacts of health and neuro and like I, basically, I, it, it, it's a money, it's it's a business. So when you have money, you're gonna have good health yeah. a lot a lot of the time. Yeah. So you're yeah. gonna have, but but when you don't have money. Even with the poor whites, this is why I, I give so much grace, so much grace to Absolutely. racist white folks, because it might, and this, this might sound crazy, but they were tricked like everybody else. And they were they were oppressed too. not necessarily the same as slavery, but there's a level of oppression that took place as a society on their class that prevented them from growing and doing things to reach a level of influence because the powers that be weren't giving up that power. And that's that, that to me seems to be the most common denominator when I look at oppressive institutions is the fact that the people in power and what they had to do to obtain the power will not be willing to give any of that up over no protests, laws, or whatever y'all talking about. You're gonna have to take it the way they got it, which is a different conversation. I'm but that to me the biggest <laughs> I am. I, I, I love I love the again this is why I don't think I don't think our conversation you're right I'm so glad you brought in the international perspective because our conversation isn't complete without bringing in just how diverse this system is so I got like three thoughts and I'm gonna try to say them succinctly number one I'm just gonna quote Bill Hooks right off rip what she refers to as the imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy it's not capitalism it's not racism it's not any of these things by themselves it is the collaboration of imperialism that is colonialism shout out to europe and in the united states for i guess russia and china doing the same thing right about now right so imperialism mm -hmm. white supremacy we know what that is <laughs> imperialist white supremacist capitalist 
because shout out to capitalism, which a lot of people have flaws with fundamentally. I'm one of them people. Patriarchy, imperialist capitalist, white supremacist patriarchy. And then down to the system that allows men and not just men, but like the worst stereotype of men, the violent don't care about you kind of men to run the world. So it is the it is the colonists that run the world. It's the capitalist that runs the world. It's the, the white conquerors. It's the conquerors. These are like this is the system that we live under. So it's not just I got I got beef with socialists and communists sometimes because they don't bring in the racialized form of predatory capitalism that we have in the United States. I got a problem with black men because we don't bring in the patriarchal nature of the oppressive state. We got problems with That's all Americans because we never bring in imperialism. Not from America. The rest of the country, the rest of the world sees that, but we don't. So it's all of these intersections. It's not just any one of these things. It's so many different ones. One of my favorite movement, I guess I'm an organizer, quote unquote, somebody called me one day for the Poor People's Campaign under Reverend William Barber. Mm -hmm. And look it up if you haven't. I should have put this plug in the beginning because the Poor People's Campaign is really one of the things that I rock with the most philanthropically and from an activist perspective. But it really is this multiracial, multi-class, multi-generational, multi-religious, like, like collaboration of people, indigenous Americans, Jews, Muslims, black, white, you from West Virginia, you from South Carolina, you old, right. young, we are poor people. There's 140 million low income and poor people in this country, people just struggling to make it. That is, that's almost half the country, that's 40% of the country. That's a huge demographic and it's not any one group. So it really is important. And this is, we're talking about power dynamics. It can be anywhere, right? It don't gotta be based on race. It don't gotta be based on class. Like it is the powerful taking things from the people that they label as the other. And that brings me to my third point. This is one of my favorite and I'll kind of like wrap it up. One of my favorite neuropsych tests, it tests verbal intelligence. And verbal this is intelligence. Verbal intelligence, right? And this is more or less how the test goes. How is an apple and an orange alike how are they alike let out i'm asking you the question how are an apple and an orange alike they're fruits they're fruits that's a form of intelligence that's the truth how are they different 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 types of fruits yeah like tell me how they're different like tell me the difference between an apple and an orange one is has a peel that sure. is orange one right. is has different peels of different colors right there's a it's really easy to point out how an apple and an orange are different one's red one circle one tastes citrusy one's like sweeter one looks like this, one looks like that, one's symmetrical, one's not. There's a thousand ways. It's really, really cognitively simple to point out why things are different. It's really hard to talk about. It's a lot harder. My brother, it's <laughs> my older brother. He said fruit. I love that boy. <laughs> Look, he, fruit, I say saying that they're fruit is a lot more difficult and it gets harder. That's like the basic question. That's number one, to make sure you get the idea of the test before I start asking you harder questions. How are an enemy and a friend alike? They're both mm -hmm. really strong relationships. That's hard. Close to you, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It takes a different level of intelligence. So this is what it rolls down to. People will, it is so cognitively simple and this is why it's so important to have an educated populace. This is fire. I can't <laughs> even, yo, 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 yo. It is so Hold up, hold up. Verbal intelligence. I like this. I'm, I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to be so fly. I'm about to incorporate this. This is super fly. Please continue. It is so easy. It takes so little education, dog. A baby can point out why things are different, but it takes a person who's really thought about things, really learned some stuff to point out why things are similar. Not, it's, it's easy to point out why me and the white man from West Virginia, what up, Chris? It's easy to point out why me and the, and the white dude from West Virginia are different. It's so easy to point them two out, but it's so much harder 
for me to figure out the commonalities and the commonalities we've both been fucked by capitalism but like that's that's the conclusion i reached but reaching across and really finding out what makes us similar to people really does show just how if you want to be smart niggas trying to everybody want to be the smartest person in the room whatever be wise like but if you want to be wise like figure out how you similar to other people not just how you different it's not like the world will be a better place word up word up like Something else I got to ask here because I am not anti-capitalism. So I'm, 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 I'm curious. So as a young who does want a certain quality of life, mm-hmm. you got to capitalize. You're not going to get that by just, so I'm, 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 I'm curious. I'm curious. Like what is your real say core issue or argument against capitalism as a structure i like the arguments from people like robert reich one of these socialist economic or economists who bring up how capitalism was basically an evolution from things like feudalism kings rule things they got all the money the peasants don't got nothing capitalism was like all right you can go make your own money you don't got to give it to the king now that's that was kind of the evolution that it that it rolled through to People who are socialist um, economists make arguments like socialism is kind of the, is the natural evolution from capitalism. It's not just make money at any cost because from the perspective of a lot of people, I'm going to go with the Marxists right about now. From the perspective of, of the Marxists, the, the point of the capitalists and the business owning class, the people who own the business is to make as much money as possible. And they are heavily incentivized to exploit labor from the poor. Think about slavery. Of course. <laughs> you can make a lot of money if you pay your employees nothing. But that's capitalists on steroids. That's that, capitalism that's on like, steroids, right? Yeah, so that's like, that's like the spectrum, best right? case capitalist so we gotta model. Go full yeah. government control over this. This is like America is not fully capitalist. China is not fully communist. Right. Like that's not how this works. We're talking about a system where we don't have grotesque income inequality. One of my favorite books is called Runaway Inequality, and it basically chronicles how we've never had this level of income inequality here, not since like the Gilded Age. Like like three people, like five people own more than like the bottom. 140 million people that I was talking about. And when most of those people are struggling to have basic necessities, this is where I get to eat the rich. I'm a moral person. Like you have a thousand homes and they have none. I don't like this. From a health perspective, I'm trying to help my patients who don't got homes, but y'all not paying taxes, which would go to social services, which would help these people. So let me, I'm gonna run it back for a second again. I'm gonna say it a lot more simple. I was just, I just picked up this random social epidemiology book. It was down in my laundry room downstairs. I was watching, I was watching stuff the other day. I picked it up, flipped over to chapter two. It was picked up the socioeconomic position. It basically said what you said, poor people have worse health, but it started going into the history of it. And it talked about the first studies that did this. And this was in the early 1800s. And they cited a dude named Engel. And I was like, I know who Engel is. That's Friedrich Engel. That's Engel and Marx. I heard Friedrich Engel. He's one of the dudes who wrote the Communist Manifesto. So I go back to the citation of it and on the conditions of the working poor. Like this book would be banned if it was in Florida and somebody bothered to read to the second chapter of this epidemiology book. But in the first paragraph of my epidemiology book on the second chapter, it's quoting the founder of Marxism. It's not like I, it's hard for me to be in this perspective when I reckon like I have to be for universal health care because I know for a fact that it would help less people die from preventable illnesses. But I'm a, like I'm a healthcare professional. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so hold up. But but capitalism and what you mentioned in terms of inequality, income inequality mm-hmm. is Is income inequality more a function of a capitalist free market or a fractional monetary policy as it relates to 
the Federal Reserve and how they manage the currency? I'm going to go with the capitalist form of inequality that we're seeing right now is directly is directly tied to the complete lack of democratization within your own workplace. So again, this Robert Reich dude, he's like, rather than you start, rather than talking about how we need the government to control everything, because the government can be very inefficient. Think about your workplace, the place where you spend a third of your adult life, you have no democratic control of. And like there are in their charts that go like this, right? Income inequality goes down when labor union membership goes up. Labor union membership has been spiraling downward, especially in North Carolina, since the Reagan administration. And income inequality has been spiraling upward since then. That yeah. is a workforce with little power <laughs> leads to a lot of profits for a handful of people and like wage stagnation and unaffordable housing and food and health care for everybody else. And again, the capitalist incentive is to make money by all means. Like if it's not regulated and that, that regulation is what we call socialism. If there's not somebody going, hey, you can't not pay your employee. You have every incentive to do so and use the police to help you get away with it. So, so, <laughs> so, so this is, I guess this is like one of the things that I think is interesting about the US capitalist model. Like you said, nothing's fully complete free market. True. But when we look at some of these other first world, quote unquote, countries outside of America, mm. the the level in which they get taxed and the threshold in which like the trade offs from mm. b from being able to say, build something from an idea in your head and your ability to maximize what you're able to gain off an idea that started in your head in America versus some other places in the world is like no other in my yeah. opinion. And I, I and it's like, it's a theoretical argument that maybe worked in like the 1950s, but it's not hidden right now. Like the, the America's number one concept has been disproven so many times, these countries with higher taxes. I know you've been over in Amsterdam and stuff like that. I had a homegirl from Switzerland told me her first job working in a Coca-Cola factory, she was making like $25 an hour. Them taxes go out the window. They got health care. It costs like three thousand dollars to go to Germany for a four year institution. Three thousand. They get they get they, they they do get some benefits, but <laughs> we're talking about health care. We're talking about like I've seen these videos. Do you know how like much percentage of a tax they pay? It's ridiculous, but let me tell you this. But what's the percentage? These, Let's put a number on it. Like, Let's put a number on the percentage. Seen, I don't know, bro. Like, but I'm telling you, I've seen these videos of people in England hearing about how much insulin costs. This capitalism taxes. I really don't want to hear about it. Like, this is the part where I get passionate. I got a cousin who won't take his insulin medication because the costs too much. That's so not if, okay. So let me ask you this. How much? So if you made, if you made, if you made 75000 what percentage of taxes do you think is a fair, reasonable amount to pay when you're making that wage? The amount that helps people and I'm still allowed to, like, have a home and live. Like, that's fine. Like that's that's pretty much fine. Like I don't need to be rich. Like honest truth, the poor people help out poor people at a much higher rate than rich people do. No, no question. No like, question. like poor people give. Like it, it truly is the Jesus story talking about the old woman giving the last penny and the rich man giving the giving whatever else they give. Because what you're not paying in taxes directly, you're paying in the black tax for the community around you, which has no social services. I will give money to anybody, and I do often to homeless people in my community. That see, I, think, I think what you highlight is the difference. Like when you pay high taxes and get quality services, it's one thing. Truly. It's one but America thing. is not that. That's a whole but, That's a Yeah. So, 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 so a big difference, right? Like, because our higher education system, to your point, oh, this is a, this is, this is puts people in debt. 
and it often locks people down. Whereas if you're over in Europe, for example, access to higher education is like a used car or something along those lines. It's completely affordable. It's it's way more affordable, but but just as a complete side note too, over there when you over there like when I when I went to school at the University of Amsterdam, there was a bar on campus. We had beers all the time after class. Sometimes professor would even hop in, and the bar is on campus. I'm not even gonna yeah. talk about the coffee South shop Africa, across the street. I'm not gonna mention the balloon spot. But and then so and and then not only not only that like there's no like football and basketball mm. and sports yeah. and a yeah. student center with bowling and arcades very much more so focused on learning and leaving learning and leaving versus radical schools that are focused on learning right Crazy. exactly <laughs> schools exactly. that are affordable and focused on learning that's wild <laughs> exactly it's it's to me, it's interesting to see some of the differences and like that's why schools are so cheap because you you go to school and you go home. You, right. It's not like you're living at the school, eating at the school, doing like doing all these things. You you can do that, but it's not the same as like how it is, say, for from a undergraduate or a college experience in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And and just to me, like having lived that experience, but also seeing how your ability to there are certain limitations that exist when you have grand ideas that don't exist in the United States. That's what I can say from my experience, like certain grand ideas don't have the room to flourish. Hence why the United States has such a high population, like when you look at who does get to come across the borders, it's a certain type of immigrant. And there's a reason why these immigrants are 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 flocking here to chase their ideas versus doing it natively where they are, because the ability to invest and expand is so unique here because the gift and the curse is. I, 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 I agree that America is the land of opportunity for a certain select few, but I love Angela Davis's characterization of it the best, honestly. Like it is like personally, like I'd love to go make that bread, like go have the your Barack Obama moment. I could go like I could go make that money and be happy. But it really is like the argument that she said was we've been so focused on cracking that glass ceiling, getting that one exceptional Negro, that one exceptional person from Nigeria or South Africa who left their country who was able to leave because they had enough resources to get out in the first place. That one black person who went to all the private schools and was lucky enough to unlucky enough to get up there. Barack Obama, shout out to him. Like we focus so much on the glass ceiling and much less so on the cracked foundation. All of the people at the bottom. Like we focus Michelle Alexander made a similar argument in the New Jim Crow. She said after after the Civil Rights Act, the elite black people focused on affirmative action, not raising the minimum wage which would have helped the masses of low-income black people. It really isn't about individual success because individual people can make it out. If you work hard enough, it's not right. But if you have the resources and the luck as an oppressed person, you can make it out. Go do your Clarence Thomas thing. Perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. But the honest truth is it's not worth it. We've done this too many times. It's too many handfuls of black people. We got a black doctor here. We got a black lawyer there. But so what do you what do you think is the solution? I'm curious. What do you what do you think is the solution? I'm curious. Like, do you think that should leave? Go to Liberia? Nah. Like that one of those models? Like what, what do you strange. think is the solution? 
it's real strange. I toy with the idea of leaving the country myself. Even if I did, I'd still be fighting for me. I don't think we back. should, personally. I don't we think we should. We put too much into this. We put too much into this. Whether you call it a sunken cost fallacy, integrating to a burning house, jumping on the Titanic that's sinking, if that's how you see it, like, I, I think America is a wonderful democratic experiment, to quote Cornel West. Like, it is. Like, it does have so much promise and so much potential. It does. It's also built on a bunch of genocide and enslavement. So like, that's also in there. And that was driven by the capitalist, by the capitalist desire to make as much money as possible, regardless of who you exploited to get there. So I think so both of those things let, let, exist in the same time. Let's <laughs> pause, though. Let's pause, though. Right. Because yeah. most of the world's history is driven off of genocide and things of that nature. If we're going to be yeah. like honest right well, like isabel wilkerson will argue and cast that there's only two systems maybe three if you include nazi germany but she talks about the hindu caste system and the system of racialized capitalism in the united states the system of chattel slavery in the united states is the two unique standalone forms of that level of oppression again the hindu caste system is i agree i agree <laughs> i agree i agree in terms of what it looks like here but oppression does exist in very oppressive ways outside like like child slavery i do agree is in fact like uniquely an experience that if you don't if you're not here to descend from that or relate to what that means being in america being black and in society you don't really understand what that means until you get here yeah i um, said these other countries both had some Southeast stuff like that, Southeast <laughs> Asia, like, like they had like genus, gen genocidal acts that wiped out like populations of peoples and they didn't necessarily look that much different from each other either. You know what I'm saying <laughs> like, but, but yet they're killing each other at mm -hmm. high levels. So what makes this more the theory of one stuck casting a stone, like what makes this form of oppression so much worse than like mm -hmm. the fact that everybody's oppressed at a, yeah. at a large scale. The, the one thing that I can say again, I, I can't, I wish I could, like, I, I, I don't have the degree in international global affairs. I don't got the, the degree in micro and macroeconomics. I'll weave all of that stuff into my research. But again, just back to the health disparities, like perspective, places that have higher labor union membership have better health outcomes. Places that have higher minimum wages have better health outcomes. When we passed that child, that child tax credit, it lifted millions of children out of poverty during COVID and then it went away and dropped them right back in. These policies that people are calling socialists, fine, sure, call it what you will, is evidence-based to improve health outcomes. And like the basic human right is life, <laughs> the right to live, mm. like the right to live. And I can tell you that unchecked predatory capitalism, the way that it exists, the, right, the system of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy that we have here in this country, is destroying our health health outcomes compared to those other nations that we're talking about. If all we're talking about is health, if all we're talking about is health, I'm not even talking about everything else, education outcomes, like wealth outcomes. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about just purely your ability to live. Then America is like, we look like a third world country, especially when you start stratifying it by race and class, especially when you start looking at black people and poor people. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> like, so it's like, like that's, how it, that's how it comes. Like, I, I, I don't got all the micro and macroeconomic arguments. Now, again, go to the poor people's campaign because they use like 15 Nobel Prize winning like economists to back up the things that I'm saying right now. So I really encourage stuff like that. I know that there are evidence-based arguments behind this, but personally, I could care less about the economic, care about morality, <laughs> ethics, human rights, 
Like, who do you like? Should people should I be pissed off, bro? I've been in, I've been in epidemiology classes for like five years, just listening to how black men are supposed to die fifteen years younger. Epidemiology oh, classes in the midst of COVID. That's in the crazy. midst of COVID, just looking at who's about to get impacted and knowing that there's ways to fix it, but everything that we keep shouting, raise the minimum wage, give people time off from work, increase labor union membership guarantee people housing somehow in some way or health care those things would let less people specifically poor people of color die from stupid things that wealthy white people aren't dying from and that's both here and internationally because i did a lot of stuff in south africa too they got health disparities there in the same way but especially compared to the united states there are people like if you i care about human beings people shouldn't die from things that are preventable that's that's the short version and we have evidence-based ways to fix that, but they're not politically popular. People don't think it'll happen here. We're not Europe. We can't get it popping. And it's true. Like there's, it's very true. Like I, I do understand. And I think it's actually been a Reagan line, which is like the system's messed up. That's why we shouldn't fund it. Don't increase taxes because nothing works, which then makes nothing work, which then increases the argument of don't fund it, <laughs> which then increases the argument of nothing works. It's a cycle of dysfunction. Yeah. One thing begets another. Which is, but again, just but just talking about like, can you make your workplace more democratized? Can you have power? Can you and your employees link up together without getting fired? Shout out to North Carolina because they will and can do it to you immediately the moment you say you're going to form a union. But can I link up to my friends and be like, doesn't appear those people can make the change because it's not popular, right? Uh, Martin Luther King's questions about popularity and expediency and all those wonderful things I think are a beautiful quote, but I'm not going to go there yet. But. If you can have more power in your workplace, you and your friends can link up and be like, yo, they're not paying us enough. We deserve time off. Why do we have zero days, zero paid sick leave? Why? What is that? Again, we look like a third world country. And I'm not shouting. I'm not I'm not denigrating those developing countries. I love them developing countries. They look like that because they're being colonized. What is our problem? Right. What is the United States doing? Is It's a it's an issue that i got a lot of problems with. The economic arguments, I know are there. Those aren't mine. Like, I guess healthcare is enough. Like, people deserve to live. And the n- in the submarine shouldn't have a better. Sorry, I'm not so Yeah. <laughs> then the people on the ship, then the 700 migrants who died on a refugee ship trying to get to Europe. Like, that's not cool. I've got a problem with that. All right. So, all right. We're going to begin to close out here because, like, one, I appreciate the the dialogue. And I got to, like, position, pause things a certain way because I, I, like, you go a mile a minute. So I really got to give you... Things to think about because that, that throw you off your pattern because I know you're into this stuff. You you've been in a five year program, so you're in this five year program. When when will you be done? Like yeah. estimated. When will you be done? And we could call you doctor, doctor. What we call you, doctor Daniel? Like like what we what what's the right word, doctor Daniel, doctor George. Hopefully by 2025, 2026, y'all can feel free if you feel so obligated to throw doctor in front of my name. At this point, you can keep calling me George. I'm fine. <laughs> say, say, say the date again. When, Hopefully when? 2025, 2026. I got a couple more clinical internships. I got to do some dissertations to finish up, some some stuff like that, board certifications and things like that. But I'll get there. Yes, you will. Days. Yes, you will. Indeed, indeed, man. Indeed. <laughs> again. Having met you when I met you, when you were leaving high school, preparing for undergrad, frankly, going 
up until this point of having a, a, a good, I don't, I do remember maybe linking back up a couple times when you came back to Durham, when you were a freshman, I think maybe we went and got lunch with Stacy right, once right. or twice or something right. like that. Um, But, but before I like, I, I just want to, I want to shout out that group of young folks who were in that classroom that I had the opportunity to work with while at mm -hmm. Hillside for those couple of years, uh, yourself, Stacy, both the Jasmines. All the Jasmines. Yeah, all, all the Jasmines. Uh, Khadijah. Jeez. Uh, oh my God, I'm glad you remember everybody who was in that 21st century. And, and, and wow. I, know, I know I'm forgetting a couple of names. I know I'm forgetting a couple of names, but that experience for myself being in my younger 20s, fresh out of undergrad, at that school, I talk about this on some earlier episodes, but being from Durham, it's like we weren't that far apart in age, but yet I had to find a way to like get people's respect. That group really like helped me see that I had a, a opportunity in what I was doing moving forward early on because it was just the classroom and I like uh, it wasn't really like Whoa. other people stopping through. Whoa. And I just want to shout y'all out because without that experience, I don't necessarily, like, I know for sure that was a, a molding experience for myself uh, being in my early twenties to see where you are today from meeting you during that experience, man. I can't wait to see where you are another year, two years, five years from now, man. In all seriousness, like, yeah. Keep keep pushing, doing what you're doing. I don't know if you can get multiple PhDs or what, but like, no, don't no, stop no, researching, no, man. Gonna like, I'm keep learning forever. <laughs> you, you're opening up a whole new lane of research that people can 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 follow in your footsteps, and and it is it is it's awesome to see you in this stage of life, not just from an academic standpoint, but holistically, like from, from black man to black man, I'm, I'm very happy to see what you're doing and I want to continue to support it. But with that said, is there, is there any sort of final takeaways or just anything that you hope people listening can, can take from this and, and, and carry with them after, after listening? In the in the in the spirit of Stacy Darrell Best Jr., <laughs> my dog. I don't know where he got this quote from, but it never left me. Uh, blessings go through you, not to you. I said, go help somebody. Go go do something. The life, the unexamined life, is not worth living. Figure mm. yourself out. Do some self work. <laughs> Interrogate yourself. Really get to the to what you care about, and and go be that person. Go be that authentic person. That's nothing else. But a bunch of people poured their love into me. That's who I am. That's why I am who I am today. Shout out to you and she. You and Rashid, <laughs> Luke one for for helping me out, man. But I followed right in your footsteps and became a 21st century uh, advisor. I was a counselor to them kids too. I was working with the Word. kids right after we took them to DC at one point too. I was, I was right with you, bro. So thank you for setting that role model. I wouldn't be who I was without your mentorship. Oh man, don't do that to me, George. Don't do that to me, man. <laughs> You're crowned the pride. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, good. man, you, 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 again, man, can't say it enough. Happy to see what you're doing. I'm, I am going to figure out even more strategically. We're going to go down like a wormhole of something that has to do with your research because I think it's important, important research to share with the community. And if you aren't aware, we got the link in the description where you can read up a little bit more about what George is doing in the short term. We, if you got questions, Make sure you drop them in the comments, drop them in the chat, like let us know, because when I get them back onto the podcast, we, we will we will 
it's going to be something different at that point. It's going to be a different level of, of, of expertise, man. So I appreciate you. This is the G podcast where we focus on family, friends, finances, freedom, and our future, and everything else. This is the G podcast. We live featuring the homie George. Make sure y'all subscribe. We'll see y'all in the next one. We are out.